This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Like the Kokako, the saddleback or tieke belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Hello, friends. Today we have with us Brian Scott, a five-term Otago Regional Councilor, to talk about the Regional Council. Brian, why did you choose to become involved with the Regional Council and stand in the first place? Yeah, sure. And, and firstly, thank you for the opportunity to come along here and, and, and talk and, and meet with you. Why did I stand on the Regional Council? Well, that, that's not a straightforward question, but... I, I I grew up in South Otago. Um, I had a feel of what the whole county council, regional council thing was all about. Um, after I had done my OE situation, I came back and I had a young family. Um, uh, I, I was on the board of trustees at George Street Normal for 10 years. And then I thought, well, what's next? And I had a particular interest in the environment. And I thought... There were some real challenges there, and I hoped that I could make a positive difference. So I put my hand up uh, at the election. Uh, I was unsuccessful in the first instance, but perseverance won through, and eventually I got there. I mean, the Regional Council is is here for Otago. It's it's an organisation that has a long-term vision. It cares about the environment. Who wouldn't want to be involved? All right. Is the Otago Regional Council functioning appropriate can you talk about this yeah um i mean that that's another complicated question um is it operating appropriately look i think in the main it, it's operating very appropriately it's 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 an important institution um it needs to operate uh, appropriately but in the matter of important water issues I, I take exception I think that the Otago Regional Council needs to do better when I talk about the Otago Regional Council I'm not talking about the staff operational side of things who who do very well in the main and thank you to them I'm talking about the t- 12 elected councillors governance who I believe need to do better on water issues and I put my hand up as one of those councillors how could they do better? How could they do better? Well, I mean, 
One of the, um, just as we move this mic around, how could they do better? Um, well, I think they, if they kept their eye on the ball, that would be a good start. Um, recently, the governance wrote to the Minister Parker and asked to delay uh, completion of the land and water plan, and I certainly disagreed with that. And I think um, time will tell whether the Minister agrees or disagrees with that. He sent down his representative, Professor Skelton. The key point was that while governance asked for a delay, it, it flew in the face of the staff recommendation. The staff recommendation was that things were under control, let's get on with it, let's achieve the outcome that we're after, notification by the end of 2023 um, yeah and and I think the frustrating thing from my perspective was that this was a num this was one of a number of concerns when it came to governance and water matters you said in a newspaper uh, interview that the council was not working constructively with with the Former Chief Executive Sarah Gardner, could you yeah. comment on about this? Yeah, sure. And 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 I think um, I was particularly again talking about the water issues. I mean, the big picture. If you look at the big picture, is that central government? I think it's fair to say, you know, is left on the political scale. You've got a Labour government on the left, and you've got green the Green government. When you look at um, regional politics and you look at the makeup of our council I think I would suggest that it's 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 that the majority are right leaning so you've got central government left leaning in terms of their policies and aspirations you've got regional government right leaning in terms of their aspirations and policies and right in the middle of that you've got a chief executive um uh, trying to implement the central government policy but also trying to meet the needs of the regional government. So there's tensions there and and it's certainly my view that through those tensions and through uh, some of the water work that ag governance could have done better and, and needs to do better in the future. Yeah, I mean generally we, from my perspective, we were very fortunate to have... Uh, such a talented and hard-working CE. She did so many good things in terms of, for example, staff culture, uh, implementing regional and national policy, establishing plans, making headway on difficult water issue, filling the gaps in terms of a land and water plan, basically rolling her sleeves up and getting on with it. And, and uh, I think councillors' governance could have done better in that process. At the end of the day... She's gone. She resigned. The you talked about her work with staff governance and making them feel secure and comfortable. The staff and council and some council members didn't always get on, and yeah. the council members, as some people understand it, didn't always make the staff comfortable or yeah. treat them as respectfully as they might. Would that be a? I think that's fair. And I, I think um, that's well documented. Um, uh, there were things said by some governance that, I, in my view, shouldn't have been said. Uh, staff are in a difficult position because often they quite simply cannot defend themselves. So uh, governance, we can point the finger, we can say this, that and the next thing, and that's fine. But I don't think it's necessarily always fair. 
um, balanced against that, uh, there is the need and maybe the right to, for governance and councillors elected by the communities to be able to speak in a free and open, frank sort of way without constraint, but one also needs to be considerate. One needs to think of the big long-term picture and, and the impact of, of some of the words that are used. The council, you talked about a left-right. Should the environment be a left-right issue? <laughs> that, in your that, that's actually quite an interesting question in itself. I, I think, like, if you look at central government, um, I think the Greens, you know, and the environment naturally are on the left. And I think that's the natural place in terms of the environment. Those on the right, of course, would argue that. They would say that they're doing good environmental things, and, and there's a lot of truth in that. But one of the issues between left and right, and, and with the issues that we've sort of faced, for example, in the Manuhira Kia, is that we have this um, national policy requirement to do things, to prioritise the health of the waterway, the health of the river. and then But then when push comes to shove, um, the, the argument is then raised, well, this is going to impact on X number of jobs, 100 jobs, this type of thing. And, and, and OK, I've classified that as, as maybe uh, uh, in the right political domain, and, and that's the way it is, and that's where that tension can often be. We actually, as councillors, have a responsibility to implement national policy, and that and that policy, one of those policy things is Timana OTY to prioritise the health and the well-being of the waterway. Okay. Normally, when a council seat goes vacant, I assume the person next on the list would be appointed especially if there's more than a year to go before the next election. Yeah. And this was the case with the Otago Regional Council yeah. when Marion Hobbs resigned. Yeah. There was still slightly more than a year to go, and we had somebody ready to take that seat, Scott Willis. Why did yeah. that not happen? Yeah, and that was my view. In fact, I'm, I, I, uh, apologies, I, I moved, unsuccessfully moved a motion in that regard. I wasn't particularly interested who, who was the next cab on the rank it was just uh, there's 12 seats uh, communities deserved fair representation Marion was gone for reasonable reasons and so why wouldn't you go through some reasonable sort of process um, when push came to shove the the roles were that council had the choice because of the time period between Marion leaving in the next election, they had the choice whether to replace Marion's seat or not. How many months did they have? Um, well, I, it would have been, it was probably less than a year, to be fair. The election um, is in October this year, and I think Marion left after October, so you probably find approximately 10 or 11 but months. It was uh, nearly a year. Yeah, nearly a year, it but, was in, but uh, I suspect it was 21. Yeah. But okay. I suspect less yeah. than a year, and that was probably where the squeeze really was. So um, legally, they, so, yeah, yeah, legally, they they, you they know, had a choice. They had a choice, and they exercised that choice. What happened to the pay that 
would have normally gone to the 12 councillors. Yeah, well, that's that's another interesting question. When I, um, so what actually happens is that Marion's pay approximately 60 grand gross um, gets divided up amongst the other 11 councillors. And um, at that point, I put up my hand and uh, said, well, I'm not having anything to do with this. Um, and I declared that I would donate my $70 a week to an appropriate institution, which I subsequently do to the South Asian Army Food Bank. So every fortnight when the money comes into my account, uh, $70 times two goes into the Salvation Army Food Bank. I do emphasise I, I wasn't the only councillor to make that decision. Uh, out of the 12, uh, out of the 11, another three councillors made that decision as well. And and each councillor has different okay, that's, circumstance. That's four out of nine. Sorry? Four out of nine. Um, four out of 11. Four out of 11, sorry. Yeah. Okay. So... If I was one of those towns, I'd feel slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> well, um, that that's fair. That's fair. Um, that's obviously not the choice they made. I certainly felt very uncomfortable. To me, um, you know, I needed to be... I, I, I believed that Mary needed to be replaced and, and that I certainly wasn't going to get any financial compensation... In, in any other direction. The key thing to remember with this is that through the whole process, um, on important water issues, we had 12 councillors. Two councillors declared conflict of interest. So there were basically 10 on the table uh, voting and debating. And typically, that, of that 10, it was split down the middle five all and with Marion in the chair there was more than once she exercised her casting vote so not to replace Marion from my perspective was really significant that was a political decision wasn't I, it I, I believe well if it wasn't then there's some naivety that was certain look the way it works I think is that each councillor votes individually for whatever reasons they think but I, I would be amazed if at least for a number of the councillors that wasn't a political decision knowing full well what the implications were and and I you know I was really disappointed about that um yeah. So, um, I mean, as on some issues now, you know, not those councillors don't necessarily have that conflict of interest. So it's not necessarily the 5 5 scenario. Like currently, there's 11 and there's a lot of votes going 7 4. So there is a bit of a gap, to be fair. But nevertheless, at the time, that was a significant decision and I believe an inappropriate decision. Can you talk about the man? Manuherakia River. Am I pronouncing that right? Um, First, the Manuherakia River. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in pronunciation, and I apologise if, if I myself get that wrong. You know, the, the Manuherakia River is is quite a it's quite a story, and I'm no expert on it. And and please, because if there's anybody listening that is, um, I emphasise I'm not an expert, but I. I 
I I have been here for a period of time. I picked up certain information, and I've also uh, done a certain amount of homework for this radio interview. I acknowledge the article I've read in Rural Life, 12th of August 2021, and also a report by McKee Consultancy, which helped. Um, okay, to kick off the Manuherakea story from my perspective, first to acknowledge iwi, and I mean iwi, you know, a thousand years um, um, moving around our hinterland from the coast, Punamu, all those travels, the Manuhira Kia, uh, collecting Mahinga Kai, uh, it must have been a really interesting place. Um, I think, you know, a number of years ago we saw the, the Moa footprint on one of the local streams and, or tributaries, and, um, you know, there were Moa there, there were Maori there. Um, and that's a real foundation for for our history. And then there were in the 1860s the there were the first European rights to take water from the Manuherakea for gold mining. And then you know as the gold was that mi- important that gold mining rights for water. Oh yeah, definitely. Can you go into that a bit? Um, well, you know, like you need water to be able to separate the, the gravels from the gold and the whole sluicing sort of process. I don't know if it really works without water. And at the end of the day, the gold, you know, like was in the Clutha, the gold was around the Manuhiri Care areas, and, you know, like it's all intertwined. I'm no expert on it, but rivers, gold, water, they were intertwined in the 1860s. Didn't the miners have certain rights to use that water uh, for a, a long time period yes, they did. in almost any way they wanted. Yeah, no, no, no. There no, were exactly. no restrictions, really. No restrictions, really. That's right. Um, just to answer your previous question, though, like, you know, the whole Manuhiri Care thing from the 1860s, you know, the, the government, our government, basically put in a lot of infrastructure from the upper Manamoon Dam 1914, pulled in... Paul Byrne Dam, 1931, Ida Byrne Dam, 1931, the various schemes around that, the Hawkton Ida Byrne scheme, the Galloway scheme, the Dunstan Creek, and ultimately, sorry, not the Dunstan Creek, but erase it out of Dunstan Creek, and ultimately, you know, the, the magnificent Falls Dam in 1935. So, and the Public Works Department used the Falls Dam to supplement the water supply to these various irrigation schemes. And as you were saying, um, you know, the flow sharing agreements were formalised, but often, you know, without that total restriction. Um, they didn't have any restrictions under the old mining rules, yeah, did they? That, that's my understanding. Um, and But within their schemes, they had various priority systems. So one particular, you know, uh, irrigation scheme might within that scheme different holders would have less priority than their next door neighbour and they had different things that sort of worked and I think to be fair to them they would also argue that they had their own sort of environmental uh, integrity and responsibilities and all that type of thing. Obviously now things have just, things are really ramped up, we're not just sheep farming, cattle farming you know we've got dairy farming and all this type of stuff and in the Manuhiri Care, we've got some real um, clashing uh, things going on between fishing, swimming, boating, habitat for species, cultural mahinga kai water uses, and you know, and the irrigators. So you've got these competing interests. 
Yeah. Is the river flow important for the health of the river and the life in the river? Oh, definitely. That's that's the fundamental, you know, that is the fundamental, like, Timana OTY. The priority is the health of the waterway. And, and so the is way... Is the flow important to the it? The flow is important. They basically, that's how they analyse what flow, what minimum flow is required. They look at the ecology. They see what, um, you know, native fish, this type of thing, what type of flow do they need to thrive? And, and that is... That is a fundamental, and that's why, like, you know, our staff, they brought in experts, bring in science, this, you know, with your rates increase, this is, we're getting this expertise, and at the end of the day, in August last year, our staff put a recommendation on the table where in 2023 the minimum flow would be 1,200 litres per second, in 2030 it would be 1,500, 2037 it would be 2,000, and 2044 it would be 2,500. So it was a transition. It was, and, and what a minimum flow is, is a minimum flow is, you know, the river is, should not go less than that flow. That is your minimum flow to, to enable okay. your species and your ecology to, to survive. Would the increasing... Uh, irrigation interrupt that flow? Um, the irrigation interrupts flow, but not the minimum flow. That is the definition of a minimum flow, is that irrigators stop taking water at the minimum flow. Well, if it's not regulated, will it interfere? Well, if it's not regulated, they, yeah, they, you know, that, that the consequence is... Is it regulated now? Uh, it is. Um, it is regulated now at, at uh, I think a minimum flow of eleven hundred at campground. Okay. I think what I've got was that the um, the recommendation again? The recommendation. So, through consultation and science reports and so forth, you had the irrigators basically saying that the minimum flow should be the status quo, which is roughly eleven hundred liters a second. And at the other end of the spectrum, you had. Uh, Iwi and Fishing Game saying no, it should be 3,000. And the ORC staff, you know, doing their own analysis, uh, implementing national policy and coming up with the numbers of basically just above the status quo, 1,200 litres a second, 2023, 1,500 litres a second in 2030, 2,000 litres a second, 2037, and 2,500 litres per second in 2044. I don't know if that 2,500 is necessarily better down. None of this is better down. None of this is better down. This is just staff okay. recommendation that will go to notification, go to an independent hearing panel uh, at the end of 2023-24. Okay, putting this off, this report off and, yeah. and putting off the decisions, is this meeting the um, ORC's obligations to the environment and river flow. Yeah. And their well, obligations to the national yeah. government policy. Well, I think if you've got the 12 councillors or 11 and currently and line them all up, they might all give you a different answer. Um, the people that voted not to note that staff report would basically say uh, that they were seeking more information, that there was uh, various information that was incomplete. Have they put off decision-making on the river flow before? They, um, well, not this particular uh, group of councillors. So but has the region? 
Uh, well, you know, I think there'd be those that have argued that we've been putting it off for the last 30 years. I mean, you've been here for five yeah, times. Yeah, but not the, the rubber's meeting the road on this point here. We What our council has done is gone around the region and looked at different re- rivers and sorted out minimum flows on different re- rivers, and now it was the time of the Manuhiri Kia. And the Manuhiri Kia also is timed in relation to, legally timed in relation to the uh, termination of DEEM permits, which, if I got this right, it must have been like 1992, around the start of the RMA, but that uh, DEEM permit holders were given another 30 years, 10, 10, 10, that sounds right, uh, to basically 2021 type of thing. They, those those years would be a, they were given that so they have had twenty time. so they have thirty years to prepare. They've had thirty years to repair to prepare. Shouldn't they have had a report and regulations and everything ready to go since they've possibly? Had and if they were sitting here, they would say the same thing. They would say not only did they have thirty years to prepare, but also council did. Um, so nobody's really come out of this process process um, smelling of roses, but nevertheless, here we are. And, and so instead of progressing forward positively uh, with the staff recommendations, it, from my perspective, it was another delay. Another delay, instead of betting this river down, having some rules and some certainty, not only for the people on the environmental side, but also for the irrigators to plan. And with time to plan. So, for example, at the, the 2,500 litres a second, there's actually another 22 years in terms of to prepare and plan on a transition basis. Well, what happens to the river in this time if it gets a lot of low, lower flows? Well, it, it, um, the reality is that, uh, you know, in times in the summer, the river uh, will not be operating as a true river um, until it so when so we're talking about in the, uh, in an extreme situation uh, it's dry irrigating water the river level is dropping down the river is not thriving the and this is what the ecologists are saying you know that the native fish or or, or whatever the or or you know that's the also nat- the Fish that are planted, like salmon or trout. Yeah, that you know that to some degree is all thrown into the equation. But also other interests, you know, like iwi saying they they want their ability to get their traditional mahinga kai. Uh, the locals are saying I want the ability to have a swim and and boat, and I need a certain flow. And why is the river flow so low at eleven hundred liters per second? And and there's tension all around that. There's different people saying different things. It's okay. It's not okay. That's why we get, you know, an independent analysis. We get the experts in. We get a peer-reviewed, and we move forward. We move forward, and and that's another. If you didn't want change of the river flow, would you be a bit worried about the experts? Because the experts probably are people that have studied the environment and care about the environment, and yeah. care about river flows, yeah, more than they care about 
economic progress, for instance. Well, no, they, that's what their legal obligation is. The legal obligation is to mana OTY. And, and what that means is that refers to the vital importance of water. Any resource consent application must demonstrate how it ensure that the fresh water is managed in a way that prioritises in this order. One, the health and well-being of water. Two, then the health needs of people. Three, then the ability of people and communities to provide for their social, economic and cultural well-being. But in that order of preference, so the basic tenets being that if you sort out the health of the waterway, you're then enabling all this other positive stuff sure. to happen. If that's your priority, your personal priority. Yeah. The, um, I think we'll play some music now and then we'll come back. Cool. The sun is shining and the air is clear. I'm sitting in the sunshine. Treating myself to a nice little bottle of Mr. Cooper's ice cold beer in the blue sky above me. Whistling kites glide on the river below me. Pelicans paddle and moor hands rustle through the reeds at the riverside. All seems as it should be, but there's no denying. The river is dying. Thousands of years this great river ran. It fed and nourished all manner of life that lived and flourished along its verdant banks. It took us less than 300 years to destroy it forever and turn this once great river of life into a river of tears. Hooray for progress! Nature crucifying My river is dying Oh, the politicians squabble Over what you be done You just see the problem Mostly in terms of how many votes Could maybe be lost to one While the rest of us are looking Someone else to blame Powerless and helpless We can only stand by While the mighty Murray River Turns into an open drain If I tell you I'm not worried I'd be lying My river is dying But everything is alright Everything is okay Just close your eyes tight it will all just go away It's someone else's problem Nothing to do with us Someone else will fix it Someone always does Yes, everything is alright Everything is okay If we close our eyes tight It will all just go away It's someone else's problem Nothing to do with us Someone else will fix it Someone always does That was Eric Vogel and Someone Else's Problem about the death <laughs> of the Murray River in Australia. 
And we're talking with Brian Scott, a five-term Otago Regional Counselor. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to Community or Chaos. Well, Brian, it's, um, is irrigated farming, particularly dairy farming, the most appropriate agriculture for Central Otago? If not, where should Otago agriculture go from here? Uh, take your time on this one. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think you have to be a rocket scientist when you go to Central Otago and you look at a dairy farm and you go, actually, this doesn't, you know, this doesn't feel right. Um, and then you look at the data, even on the Manuhiri Care, you know, like there'll be non-compliance water quality issues, not just from dairy farms. Also, there's a wastewater scheme that's had its issues too, I understand. Um, but overall, you, you look at it and you go, look at those soils, um, nitrogen percolating down through the stones into the waterways, and then you look and then you go, what about the you know general water situation, the water supply issues? You think about climate change in the future. You think whatever's there is causing issues and it's going to get potentially get worse. Um, yeah, sure, we're doing our minimum flow process and all this type of thing, but let's be honest, the rivers are coming under more stress. One of the, you know, for this radio interview, I thought um, I, I, I did some research on our glaciers, and, and it becomes quite clear that between, well, between 1978 and 2020, the total volume of glacial ice in New Zealand decreased by 35%, and that rate of annual loss is increasing. The Guardian also had an article where they said that many of New Zealand glaciers could disappear in a decade. You know, and here we are, you know, here we are thinking, well, that mighty Clutha will always be mighty. It'll be able to feed all these dairy farms, but will it? We actually need to constructively plan for the future. And, and this is one of the regional council's responsibilities, having that long-term view, doing the science on water flow, doing the science on water quality and and I suspect in terms of our community we need to identify other options that's my view do you think that sheep farming and also um, this isn't your field to be fair but yeah. to look at ways we can sell and improve wool is that a better option than depending on dairy farms in a place like uh, Central Otago with its particular environment? Yeah, I, th I think you're right first time. It's not my field of expertise, but, but um, you know, I've made my point regarding, you know, the, the more extreme farming, the more intensive farming, you know, the dairy farms. Hey, I'm not the only one saying things like that. Minister Parker and, and the rules have put constraints about, around expansion of dairy farms and time periods. One of the key things that's actually going on is a land and water plan and other land and water plans throughout New Zealand. So we're actually doing this ground-up process. What are the values? What are our expectations? What are the minimum flows? What are the water quality issues? And that's why the land and water plan 
understand is so critical and it's critical to get on with it. You know, climate change, all these things are happening now. Just delaying for the sake of delaying, I don't believe is an option and and there it is. Okay. What kind of things would you like to see the government do to encourage a change in agriculture? As well, carrots as well as sticks. Um, look, it's difficult, you know, to pick winners and losers. I think that's that. It's that that point that we actually need to back ourselves that the New Zealand psyche to identify opportunities, but they do need pointers in terms of what's working and not working. You know, like. Um, um, we, we know, for example, we need more plantings of native bush. Um, you know, for example, I'd love to see some more uh, subsidies of that type of thing. Um, I myself am involved in, in Pinus Radio. It would be great to, to, to turn that around from a carbon perspective, from a biodiversity perspective. Um, in terms of picking winners and losers between dairy and cropping and all these things, uh, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, if you don't make some decisions, don't you won't get changed, though, will you? Well, I think the key thing is that we need to be honest and we need to be real on the impact of these types of farming. And if we do that, then I think change will be a, a national a natural and organic thing. So, for example, the Regional Council in providing water quality information, uh, education, and then prosecution. Uh, water flows, this this uh, minimum flow that we're doing, that needs to be... So iwi are on board, fishing game are on board, and, and everybody, and, and ideally the irrigators, the answer's going to be somewhere in the middle. Um, but so that we're regulating and we're focused and we're, we're, we've got our bottom lines. And then I think organically New Zealand will change. At the moment, the not having to change, the resisting, the resisting plan change, you know, the delay factors, all this type of stuff, it's not good. Is the ORC, ORC's policy statement on environmental protection fit for a purpose? Well, I, th- I think the answer to that is no, it's not. And that's why we actually need to... Um, there's been a lot going on uh, at the Otago Regional Council under Sarah Gardner, our Chief Executive, and who, as you said, is no longer with us. Um, we have been progressing the regional policy statement. Uh, I understand there's a little bit of a hiccup in the timing of that. We have been filling in the gaps in, in our water plan in terms of Plan Change 8 in relation to water quality aspects, Plan Change 7 in terms of the DEEM permits that we talked about in the, around the Manuhari Care and Tyree and other places, and fundamentally progressing this land and water plan. So, and they all these plans fit together. So, for example, if we were to delay this land and water plan, potentially it could impact down the road on the cons- on the consents and the consent timing of the deemed permit hold- previous deemed permit holders. It all sort of fits together. No, it's not currently fit for purpose, but the aim is that it will be over the next two or three years. Should we have to wait that long? Should we have to wait three years? Um, well, we've still got our current laws, 
It's just and rules, but you know they've just got a few gaps in them. Like for example, the Manuhiri Key, the minimum flows say eleven hundred litres per sec- second. Um, but as you know, plan change seven, plan change eight. There was a lot of testiness around all that, but they've all gone through. We as a council, when it was split five five, actually put it to the environment court and actually got things to progress. Um, was was the process perfect? No, it wasn't. And I I say that with some humbleness to all parties, but nevertheless, incrementally it's moved forward and we've got an outcome. Could you talk about the disestablishment of the Environmental Information and Science Directorate and what's that about? Yeah. Well, science, that's been one of my hobby horses. I trained originally as, uh, I've got a degree in chemical and process engineering. I've got a a technical background um, and you know, engineering is a fundamental at the regional council, principally natural engineering, civil engineering, this type of thing. And another fundamental foundation is science. So approximately eight years ago, we used to have a science directorate. And and eight years ago, that was dismantled and it was put under other directorates. And I don't like that. Um, I, I sort of feel that something as fundamental as science and ecology should be at the front desk and it should be uppermost in their minds. Um, but anyway, it, it had held hands with engineering under a technical directorate. And from memory, it's currently under the strategic and policy directorate. It seemed to be, and, and I understand the rationale, that you know, it's providing information. It's a service delivery uh, aspect, but from my perspective, it's just so important. Yeah, there's a lot of science um, um, going on, nevertheless. Like, uh, if you look at our current staffing and so forth, science we have uh, 20 people in science. And we have another 24 in environmental implementation. It is an important area of the ORC, regardless of whether it's on the front seat or the back seat. Okay, I'm going to play another song and then we'll come back. Cool. And another. I like the last era. song. Well, same character. Cool. Down here, Huey. Hope 
that soon this drought will be ended. Hope that still the vision's splendid. In rain so glory is rising somewhere just over the far horizon beyond this dust and this smoke. Send down some hope. song yep can i can i make the point that sure. um you know it talks about the rain hui and and so forth that any raindrops in otago stay in otago that's what defines otago that's basically the region that we we live in and and it's it's important to remember what drives what okay go ahead no i've said what i needed to say okay the you talked about the um, considering bringing in commissioners to yeah. uh, run the regional council, basically because of this stalemate over irrigation and river level flows. Yeah. Could you talk about this some more? Because considering the Canterbury environmental local bodies' experience with government appointing commissioners, is this a good precedent for local? democracy yeah well you know it's a really sensitive issue and I stress I'm not actually I've never actually said that we would replace councillors with commissioners um, all, all I've suggested is is that in the first instance we've got a problem uh, um, if anybody's got any better ideas I'm happy to listen to them and in the short term I think it would be quite a constructive thing to get a number of environmental experts also sitting at the table. I think that would create some focus and some accountability and potentially some better behaviour. Um, we're there to provide good governance. Good governance is essential. And as you say, commissioners are not a long-term solution. So, so yeah, one or two environmental commissioners, maybe an independent chair, um, there it is. The, the, uh, it's also important not to forget that a local body uh, structural review is, is presently occurring. So I would have thought, you know, watch this space. Um, I think regional councils are really important. 
Um, but, you know, whether there's any refinement around regional councils, time will tell. Um, I look forward to that insight. Okay, I thought we might go into a couple other issues that affect Dunedin. Yeah. And, um, and one of the responsibilities for the regional council is public transportation. Dunedin covers most of, much as of Otago and almost all local bus services either covered by Queenstown or Dunedin. Yeah. Wouldn't it make better sense if the Dunedin City Council, they do the roading and they provide the bus spaces and things like that? Yeah. But the Regional Council runs the bus service. Would it be make more sense for the cities? Well, possibly. Look, at the end of the day, it should never be a situation where the Otago Regional Council is holding on to something if it's not in the best interests of you know, everybody. And at the end of the day, like when it first started off, the OSE inherited the public transport because the City Council was owned a, a contractor in the bus uh, situation. And since that time, I, I, I believe... Um, that the OSC is, is, has done some good work, particularly recently we've, provi we've provided a simplified route structure, we've established a bus hub, we're trying to embrace technology in terms of our bus guards, Wi-Fi, GPS, this type of thing. We haven't achieved as much as we should have. We, we're currently reviewing the types of buses, this type of thing, and, and we're currently in dialogue with the DCC. Um, you know, time will tell. I, I don't disagree with the sentiment that the buses need to be uh, with the city council. At the end of the day, from a big picture point of view, the city council, district councils, they've lost their th most of their three waters responsibilities, and maybe this is one way to fill the gap. Um, one also sort of needs to bear in mind that the other thing that the Otago Regional Council is involved in is transportation planning. So not only in Dunedin City, but between the different areas, Queenstown and so forth. Um, and, and that's another reason why the Otago Regional Council... I, I think it's, it's time for a mature conversation um, and that the Mayor and the Chair and the different councils need to sit together and talk positively. I haven't seen much evidence of that maturity over the last term, to be honest with you, but that's where things need to be. Okay, because of, partially maybe because of COVID, but also because of driver shortages, we've had buses that haven't arrived on schedule. Yeah. We missed out. We have a, if the North East Valley it's, was every 15 minutes, well, it might be every half hour. And if you're going to work, that, yeah. you don't know ahead of time. Yeah. That can be, and then you wonder why people don't take the bus. Yeah. By the way, I take... I took the bus to get here, and I often do. But yeah. I think bus service is really important. Yeah. But is it important enough so we should make sure are the drivers paid a living wage? Well, firstly, just going back to that timetable thing, you know, we, we collect data, and the question's been that same question's been asked at the at the council table. My understanding that the percentage of lateness and and this type of thing is is it's, believe it or not within acceptable limits. But I take your point because if you want to take the bus and you need to be work at work at eight o'clock, you need to be there at eight o'clock. So that's always a, a moving 
target. We need to be we need to deliver on that. Um, in relation to the living wage, um, council under Marion Hobbs uh, agreed to a living wage. There was quite a few issues in terms of bedding it down from a practical payment perspective. Um, I I actually was aware of this particular question, and I subsequently emailed the director concerns and that director said the following that director said if I get that up on my phone said that council has budgeted through the full 10 years of the current long term plan to match the September 2021 living wage council as yet hasn't budgeted through each year of the current long term plan to match the September 2022 living wage September 23 living wage 24 living wage etc that is annual mandated increases in the living wage so there again there's some technical issues that need to be worked through but in principle uh, the governance table is 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 focused on delivering that that living wage. People need to be able to live. We need good bus drivers. The bus drivers had a had a heck of a time in terms of COVID. Um, also, there seems to be a shortage of drivers. Yeah, there's a shortage. Of, there's a shortage of drivers everywhere. If you look in the forestry industry, they're struggling to get drivers to drive their logging. Do you trucks. think this might be partially because? Since the 19, late 80s and the 90s, we've gone to a low-wage economy, and people that don't have uh, master's degrees, where they don't have specialized training, or they're not CEOs, yeah. or in large corporations, don't necessarily get paid well compared yeah. to, say, Australia. And that isn't it quite a responsibility to drive a bus? It's not. You don't... You have responsibility for the passengers. Yeah, uh, their safety. Of course, it's responsible. That's you know I agree a hundred percent with that. And maybe that's right. Maybe um, maybe the 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 bus suppliers contractors um, need to pay um, their drivers more. If they can't get the drivers, then. Maybe that's obvious. Um, the the result of that, of course, will impact on fares and and so forth. Um, the cost, uh, though, it is subsidised by rates and by tax. Um, yeah. Perhaps we should look at public transport in relation to climate change and also in relation to the needs of the community and country. And it shouldn't maybe it shouldn't be based on commercial. A commercial basis should yeah. be based on community needs. Well, that's what the government's saying. So, look, we 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 as a council came up with a reduced fare in Queenstown with big success, and then, like, remarkably, you know, in Dunedin as well with the two dollar fare. Now, the government's reduced that, as I understand, to approximately a dollar fare for a particular period of time. So, uh, there's a lot of people that agree with that sentiment. Um, Unfortunately, reducing fares is only one of the drivers to get people on the bus. I suppose efficiency in time. Efficiency in time, exactly. You know, people need to know that they can actually get to work. So there's all these other factors, and the regional council needs to keep things going. Well, what are your uh, hopes for the future of the regional council? Um, I'm always optimistic. 
um, about the regional council. It needs governance needs to get its act together, and staff need to continue to evolve. Um, you know, the the regional council's been going through quite a growth period. I can remember when it had a hundred staff, and now and now it's got you know, just about 300 staff and still challenged to meet its responsibilities. Um, it just needs to move into a more mature state, bed certain things down, work with the community, deliver on environmental improvements. It has no choice. It needs to get on with it and, and, and deliver on this, whether it's climate change, whether it's water quality, whatever it is. And that's fundamentally why... I still put up my hand to be a councillor on the ORC. You're hopeful and positive in the long run. What choice do we have? Thanks a lot for coming on. We really appreciate your pleasure taking part. Thank you. Brian. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.